Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on August 19th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... There does seem to be something linking the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe to the play Hamlet. And to paraphrase Shakespeare, what a piece of work is Dan, Dan Falk, that is. He was last on this program in 2009, talking about his book In Search of Time, and he joins us again to discuss his latest work, The Science of Shakespeare, a new look at the playwright's universe. By the way, there's a brief excerpt from the book available free on our website, www.scientificamerican.com. The excerpt is called What Shakespeare Knew About Science. Just Google Scientific American and Dan Falk to find it. Dan was visiting New York City from his home in Toronto in July, and we sat down for the conversation that follows. It's in two parts, part one lasting just over half an hour, part two clocking in at a bit under 44 minutes. Hey, an uncut Hamlet goes on for four hours. Anyway, here's me and Dan. Dan Falk, great to see you again. Good to be here. Why the science of Shakespeare? How did you decide that you wanted to investigate this story? There were a few different things that led me to writing this book. Um, one of them is just noticing that Shakespeare lived at this remarkable time when discoveries were happening that now, with you know the advantage of hindsight, we can say this was part of this was the beginning of the scientific revolution. Uh, nobody called it the scientific revolution at the time. Uh, nobody said, "Hey, it's the late 1500s. We should start revolutionizing our science." You know, it, it wasn't like that. Although Francis Bacon sort of did that. Well, that's you know that's true, and and he did publish his first book around the time. Shakespeare was writing uh, King Lear, give or take. Um, I think it was 1605. Uh, I might be off by a couple of years, but I think it was 1605. That was that was Bacon's The Advancement of Learning, and that's where he begins to set out this this path for for illumination uh, through science. And he he goes on to do that in, in more detail in uh, uh, the Novum Organon. If I'm uh, my my Latin isn't very good, but I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, so and Bacon was a, a very interesting figure in that regard. But, um, you know, just looking at some of the basic milestones, I mean, Copernicus had published his book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, uh, 20 years before Shakespeare was born. Uh, and by the way, it was a good year for science because that, that was also the year that Vesalius publishes his, uh, influential book on, uh, human anatomy, uh, correcting some of the mistakes of the ancient Greek thinkers, uh, which actually is what, what Copernicus was doing too. Um, and then at the, at the later, so in between there are different things like, uh, you know, Magellan, uh, uh sailing around the world and, um, you well, know, the, the crew made it around the world. The crew, that's, that's a good point. Magellan himself wasn't quite so fortunate. His, his crew made it around the world. Um, the first Atlas was published, uh, Merc- Mercator, uh, uh, gave us that, uh, that word. Um, and then just towards the end of that period, um, before Shakespeare retires, we have Galileo aiming his telescope at the night sky and the, the unexpected things that he saw when he looked through his telescope and, and the support that gave to Copernicus's theory. So all these things are going on. And yet, I mean, you know, I took a, a Shakespeare course when I was in college, actually a, a couple of them. And, um, and of course that never comes up. Now there's, there's no shortage of things to talk about when you're talking about Shakespeare. So we talked about, you know, the plays, his writing, uh, how he builds, uh, you know, a drama and, and what Elizabeth's, Elizabethan theater was like. And I mean, there's, there's obviously no end of, of, of topics. Um, and there's a whole sort of Shakespeare industry where, you know, but not just biographies of Shakespeare, although there's, you know, there's usually a couple that come out almost every year. Um, 
and, and books about Shakespeare's life and times, but there's very little I found about Shakespeare and the world of science. Uh, I wouldn't say it's been completely neglected. About 90 years ago, there was a book by Cumberland Clark called, um, well, something like Shakespeare and Science. It's a completely forgotten book. Nobody, you have to really dig to find a copy of that, uh, today. Um, you know, so why has it been neglected? Well, I mean, that's a whole, a whole thing we could, we could try to, to figure out. But I thought at, you know, at the very least, this makes, this is an angle from which we can look at Shakespeare. So that's one of the things that made me want to write it. Um, oh, but, you know, by the way, just obviously a coincidence of dates, but 1564 was the year Shakespeare was born. It also just happened to be the year Galileo was born. So that's kind of cool, all right? I mean, I know it's just a point of trivia, but it, is, it does kind of hammer home this point of, of, um, these, uh, these figures sort of, uh, lining up on our, on our timeline. And then the, the last thing I would mention is just that, um, we had a, a big birthday. Shakespeare turned uh, 450, uh, earlier this year. And, and that's terrific. And that's, you know, I knew there was going to be a fair bit of attention focused on Shakespeare. And maybe this would be a good time, uh, to write a book looking at the connections between Shakespeare and the world of science. It's a fascinating book. There's much of the first half is, is really an exploration of the science of the times. And a lot of that is astronomy and the conception of the, the place of the earth and the sun relative to each other and the other planets, basically, you know, the Copernicus business. Um, so let's talk about what was going on there and what some people think they see in some of Shakespeare's writings that's related to that kind of development. For sure. So one of the reasons I think that people have been slow to investigate this is that if you just sort of give it a quick cursory glance, well, let, let, let me back up for a second. I mean, when you go through Shakespeare's plays, you do find many, many references to the sun, the moon, stars, eclipses, comets, meteors. There, there's a whole lot. There's a whole litany of. I mean, it's not a rare thing for Shakespeare. He seems to have a, a sort of a passion for at least referencing referencing different you know phenomena that are happening in the sky. Sometimes it's an intricate part of the plot. Uh, usually it's not. Usually it's something that's happening in the background. But the problem is that a lot of them are ambiguous in terms of what, what worldview uh, they they commit you to. So one example of this is in uh, Troilus and Cressida, where uh, one of the generals, uh, Ulysses, uh, it gives us this kind of remarkable speech. It's very long. It goes on and on. And it's sometimes called the, the degree a speech, and he's kind of comparing the the social order down here on Earth with the cosmic order. And, and I'll just take a moment to read uh, part of it. Um, the heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place in insisture, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all the line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet Sol, that's S-O-L, uh, the glorious planet soul in noble eminence enthroned and speared amidst the other. And it continues for a bit. Right. So and the language is ambiguous. And I'll let you talk about how it's for some people, it's a, an affirmation of a Ptolemaic worldview or universe view, solar system view. And for others, it's an, a, a, an embracing of the new Copernican view. Right. It, it can, it can, that, that's the problem. It can totally go either way. I mean, 
the, the, the business of, uh, spheres and, um, proportion, I mean, it, it doesn't really tell you anything. It's the, it sounds, it, you can easily read that as the old Ptolemaic view where, where the planets are embedded on these, uh, crystalline spheres, uh, for, for listeners who, who may not have, be familiar with this. I mean, this, this ancient idea, which, which actually continued well into Copernicus's time, uh, and it wasn't until, I think, uh, Kepler that they were finally uh, sort of done away with. And that's this idea that the planets um, don't move sort of on their own, but they move because they're attached to these invisible spheres that rotate. And for the ancient Greeks, of course, they were thought to rotate around the Earth. The Earth was seen as, as being the center of everything. But for people who want to look at it the other way, uh, you know, it does say the glorious planet uh, Sol, referring to the sun, you know. It, now, it's not a shock to read the sun as a planet is actually in line with the old old geocentric view, but, you know, uh, eminence enthroned, I mean, putting the sun in this uh, sort of elevated position does sound maybe a little bit Copernican. But you see kind of the problem you get into, right? It's it's not it's not like you can point to that and go, aha, Shakespeare was thinking of... Uh, Either the old way or the new way, and and another one that's that's similar to that is um, Hamlet's uh, love poem to Ophelia, which is which is already a very oblique sort of poem, you know, and it contains line, uh, uh, "Doubt thou the stars are fire." Well, of course, I mean today we know the stars are fire, kind of, but but of course it's it, even the the wording is ambiguous because it's not sure if he's backing the idea that they're made of fire or if he's asking Ophelia to doubt the idea that so it's it's all very obtuse right yeah and, and hamlet is a very difficult play and and also hamlet either has gone mad or is pretending to be mad so so there are complications so that's one of the reasons i think that there it, there haven't been like you know there isn't a whole um, list of books uh, or, you know, works where people have tried to to read Shakespeare's interpretation of the heavens from his works because it, it doesn't, it's not something that pays off uh, immediately. However, if you dig a little deeper, and, and recently a few scholars have, um, then I think you can, you know, I think you can find some interesting things. And that, that was one of my goals in, in this book. And I, I, I found some people, it's, it's actually a pretty small handful, but uh, just, I mean, to, to give one example, Scott Maisano at the University of Massachusetts in Boston has written pretty extensively on this and, um, and, and a few other people too, including, well, I mean, he's a, a respected mainstream scholar. Uh, John Pitcher at the University of Oxford is another one who has sort of probed this a little bit. So, so I think things have finally turned a little bit just in the last, let's say the last decade as people come to see that maybe Shakespeare just had a, a slightly deeper awareness of some of the issues with regard to astronomy and cosmology than than we might have traditionally thought. I mean, the, there's certainly uh, the opportunity to interpret some of these lines in a multitude of ways, but you point out, and I was completely unaware of this, there's there's no way that the characters' names Rosencrantz and Gilderstern from uh, from Hamlet, there's no way that's unrelated to the astronomer Tycho Brahe. So why don't you tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, it's very interesting. And th- this whole case, th- this whole link, alleged link, or I mean, it, it does actually seem pretty pretty solid. Uh, I mean, it seems that there's something going on there, and, and the details are something we can... Uh, Debate, but there does seem to be something linking the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe to the play Hamlet. 
Um, so what's going on? Well, so, so a few things. Um, f- first of all, uh, Hamlet, uh, although it's, uh, it's an adaptation of a, 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 there was an earlier play, it goes back to the Middle Ages, um, but Shakespeare sort of updates it and, uh, takes the setting of the play to be the castle of Elsinore. Well, Elsinore, it's a real castle. It's, it's on the main, the Danish mainland, but it's, um, it looks out over a channel that today separates Denmark and Sweden. At that time, this was all part of the, the Danish kingdom. And one of the things that you see when you look out over the ramparts is this little island called, uh, Vien, if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, it's usually spelled H-V-E-N. And this is the island that the king of Denmark gave to Tycho Brahe, the, the, the Renaissance astronomer. So, just for your listeners who may not know, because uh, Tycho Brahe is not a household name like Copernicus and Galileo, Tycho Brahe was the greatest of the, the pre-telescopic astronomers, and he made very detailed observations of the stars, the planets, uh, everything he could see in the sky, and he did it with sophisticated instruments, but he didn't have a telescope. So, he was very keen, uh, he built sort of a, actually a, a castle, he called it Uraniborg, which means heavenly castle, uh, where uh, and, and he was wealthy too, so he had a, a very a whole crew of uh, of uh, workmen and and helpers uh, assisting him with this on this island. So this island is sort of right next door to Hamlet, the castle, the castle that Shakespeare chooses to uh, as the setting for Hamlet. His future patron, um, King James, at this time, at the, when Hamlet was written, uh, James was only the king of, of Scotland and not yet the king of England, but. But um, King James actually visited Tycho Brahe, so Tycho was kind of famous and, and a bit of a maybe even a bit of a tourist attraction. I know that's an anachronism, but but he was he was quite well known. And actually, some of Shakespeare's actor friends performed in court at Elsinore, so that's kind of cool too. There's no evidence that Shakespeare did. We have we have actually no evidence that Shakespeare ever left England. Uh, although there are, you know, there's some various extravagant theories about how he must have visited Italy. Blah blah blah, but there's no there's no proof to back that up. But again, there there are different routes by which Shakespeare could have come to know about Tycho's work. Another one. Now this is going to sound like a tangent, but I will I will bring it back to to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, Shakespeare seems to have been friends with well either Thomas Diggs, the great English astronomer, or at least Diggs's uh, widow and sons. And I, I go into that in some detail in the book, so I, I won't try to. To talk through the whole thing here, but um, they lived in the same part of London. I mean, literally just a few houses apart uh, for a while in the 1590s. Um, now, Thomas Diggs, well, <laughs> I better explain why he's significant. Thomas Diggs was a lot of things. He was a military engineer. He was a member of parliament. But in history of science, why we remember him is that he he published an updated version of an almanac that had been written by his father, an uh, astronomer and mathematician named Leonard Diggs. And what Thomas Diggs does is he adds a chapter about the Copernican theory. So he's it's writing in English. It's actually the first popularization of the Copernican theory in English, aimed at a an educated lay audience. And he's sort of praising, you know, how, how noble and great the, the idea is. So that is interesting. The fact that Shakespeare was... Uh, a neighbor, uh, more or less, of, of the Diggs family is pretty interesting. Uh, I'll just mention that, I, I mean, the, the, the connections, there's kind of a list of connections, but 
uh, one interesting one is that um, Thomas Diggs's son, now who also happens to be Leonard because they named the kid after the grandfather, but this uh, Leonard Diggs became a poet and and a fan of Shakespeare. And we know that because when you open the famous um, first folio, this compilation of Shakespeare's plays published after uh, a few years after Shakespeare's death, uh, you, one of the first things you see is, well, first there's a, a little dedication from Ben Jonson. Now, Ben Jonson was was a good poet, but you turn a couple more pages and you see a little, a, a similar poem of praise from Leonard Diggs. And Leonard Diggs was not not a very good poet, but the point is that they, they definitely, um, well, Shakespeare certainly inspired Leonard Diggs, and uh, they do seem to have, have sort of known each other. So, uh, so maybe Shakespeare had some exposure to um, to Thomas Diggs's writings. But let me let me get back to to Tycho Brahe because this all all kind of um, ties together. Um, Tycho uh, had been sending his astronomical uh, discoveries. He, he had actually had his own printing press right there on the island because the king really set him up for life. So he was sending, um, he was publishing his astronomical discoveries and then sending them to colleagues across Europe and, uh, including, um, colleagues in England. He actually mentions, uh, Thomas Diggs in one of his, uh, uh letters. He, he, he never mentions Shakespeare. That's not a surprise, but he actually does. Uh, Tycho Brahe was very, I think, somewhat full of himself. And he actually says in one of his letters to a, an Englishman and maybe one of your, uh, talented English poets uh, would like to pen some words of, of praise on, on my behalf. Uh, so we don't know if that ever happened or not. Uh, or, you know, if there's, Shakespeare doesn't seem to have been involved in that, but that's, that's, that's kind of tells you something about how uh, Tycho regarded himself. Okay, that's not quite the end of the story, though, because you asked about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, so on the, uh, the front of these um, astronomical uh, letters that Tycho was sending out, he has this engraving um, he had it, it's a copper plate engraving. He had it commissioned, uh, in Amsterdam and it shows Tycho himself in the middle, uh, sort of looking very pompous. And then around the outer perimeter, uh, of this, um, engraving, you see the crests or coats of arms of various, uh, relatives. Uh, Tycho Brahe is, uh, sort of, uh, noble extended family, uh, members and, on each crest, there's a, there's a name. If you look at the, you know, sort of the fine print of this engraving, and there's about 10 of them. I've forgotten the exact number. And you look up close, and sure enough, Tycho Brahe had relatives named Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So that's pretty cool, right? And th- this fact seems to be sort of discovered and then forgotten and then rediscovered every 30 years or so, you know? So, so it's not like, you know, I didn't discover this, uh, uh, Leslie Hodgson knew about it writing in the 1930s and, you know, people have, have mentioned it over the years, but it's very interesting. And, and again, if, if there was nothing to connect Tycho Brahe to William Shakespeare, then you could say, all right, that's interesting that, that Shakespeare coincidentally chose these names. But, you know, King James visited uh, Tycho Brahe. Uh, Shakespeare's uh, actor friends performed at Elsinore a few miles away from Tycho Brahe's observatory. And Shakespeare seems to have been friends with uh, either, well, at a stretch, Thomas Diggs himself, but at the very least, uh, his widow and their sons. I'll just mention one more little connection, which is just sort of intriguing, is that after Thomas Diggs died, his widow Anne remarries. Now, who does she marry? She marries a guy 
from Stratford, from Shakespeare's hometown, a guy named Thomas Russell. And we know that Russell is a friend of Shakespeare's because when Shakespeare is writing his will, he entrusts Russell to be one of the executors of his estate. So there's, there's a lot of funny little, you know, none, none of this is hard and fast proof. If it was, people would just be talking about this every day. But it's, it's a lot of interesting little connections between Shakespeare and Thomas Diggs, and then by extension, arguably, Tycho Brahe. So it's, it's pretty interesting, I thought. And some people think that Tycho Brahe's island laboratory is a model for the island in The Tempest. Yeah, that's also an interesting claim. And, and I mentioned Scott Mysano uh, at UMass Boston. I think he, I think he supports this view. So even though there's, there's a lot to connect, well, I, I have to choose my words carefully. There, it could be seen as a lot to connect Tycho Brahe to the play Hamlet, but maybe also to The Tempest, because after all, we have this magician, not, well, not magician, but you know, Tycho Brahe is a great scientist. And in those days, scientists, wizards, magicians, they, they were all kind of lumped together, you know? In, in the public eye, these were very comparable pursuits. And as I try to emphasize in the book, I mean, what today we think of as modern science was just gradually coming into, into existence. So yeah, this kind of, um, great thinker with special abilities or special powers on an island with different people that he's commanding. I mean, yeah, that, that sounds like a description of either Tycho Brahe or Prospero in The Tempest. So that's interesting. Although uh, another figure that's often been associated with Prospero is John Dee. Uh, I, yeah, so John Dee is, was another English, early English scientist, uh, advisor to Queen Elizabeth, but also seen as a bit of a, a magician. He was, um, when he was young, when he was in university, he, he was actually putting on plays and he, I hope I'm telling the story right, but he, he made this uh, giant beetle appear, or I think maybe the beetle flew through the air. Fly, right? appear, he gave the appearance of flying, and so people thought, well, how did you do that, blah, blah, blah. Now, of course, how he did it, I mean, he wasn't ashamed of telling people, like, look, it's a mechanical device, it works through mechanical principles, but but he had this reputation of being a conjurer, and, and that's a derogatory term. So so people were always kind of worried, like, well, you know, these these magicians, you know, these these inventors, these tinkerers, like, are they up to something good or are they up to, to evil, you know? So this is all a bit uh, murky in, in those days. You know, you say that uh, Tycho Brahe did not have a telescope. He also didn't have a nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering where you were going with that. Yeah, that's right. So that's, that's a, just a funny, I mean, uh, from what I mentioned before about, you know, I think he was kind of a, a pompous sort of person, but, but yeah, in, when he was in his 20s, um, he got into a duel with, I think he was in university at the time, so he got into a duel with another student. I don't think we know what they were fighting about, but at a certain point, he got the middle part of his nose, uh, his, I guess the bridge of his nose, uh, chopped off or badly damaged in uh, by his enemy's uh, sword. And then throughout his adult life, he had to wear either a prosthetic I think that was the deal, basically. He, he had different yeah. kinds of prosthetic noses that he wore, and he was always, like, applying some ointment to keep the prosthetic in place, so his his other enemies would make fun of him, you know, ha-ha, you're, you're that guy without a nose, and aren't, aren't you silly? So It's yeah, a shame. To, if Prospero didn't have a nose, uh, then we would really have some solid evidence yeah. to connect the two. But. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty interesting, but uh, alas, we don't, we don't quite a, have that. There's um, 
this amazing thing happens in, I think it's 1573, that uh, this Nova is... Mm. Very clearly mm. visible, even during the day. And, uh, that seems to be a pretty important event in this whole time to, to shake up the view of, of the heavens. Yeah. So, um, so I think it's 1572, I think. Uh, At any rate, within yeah. a year, that was the, the mm-hmm. date. Yeah. And, um, it challenged what people, it, it challenged the way people envisioned the cosmos because in the traditional view, the stars were the stars. Uh, they were fixed, and they were fixed for life, and there aren't supposed to be new stars popping into view. So Tycho Brahe, um, our friend, the Danish astronomer, uh, was among the first to, to notice this new object. Uh, actually, if you read his, his notebooks, they're actually quite, quite funny, um, because he says, uh, you know, I, I was fishing one day, and then I looked up, and there was an unusually bright star in, in the constellation Cassiopeia, and, and because I have known all the stars of the sky since childhood, you know, I immediately, right? So it's very, again, this idea that he's, he's just a little bit full of himself, I think. But at any rate, he was right that this star wasn't there the day before, <laughs> and uh, today we call it a supernova, the result of a, a big explosion. Um, so they didn't know what it was. It was called, uh, on his diagram, it's called Nova Stella, meaning new star. And it was bright for quite a few months. And in fact, it took about a year before it finally faded from view. And, um, Tico was, I think, the first to publish on it. So he had a, a book that was printed just with, you know, within a few months. Uh, but Thomas Diggs, who I mentioned earlier, also observed it. Thomas Diggs, the, the English astronomer and, and others, uh, saw it throughout, throughout Europe. And, it was one of the things that pushed uh, Tycho Brahe to rejecting the old uh, ancient Greek uh, uh, worldview. Now, there are some complications there because uh, Tycho was not ready to embrace the Copernican view. He didn't like the idea of a moving Earth. So remember, if you if you adopt this heliocentric view, then all the planets are running around the sun, which to us in the 21st century, it's like, hey, that's all right. But they had a lot of trouble with the idea that the Earth was in motion, because if it's in motion, why don't we feel it? You know, why aren't, why aren't the birds uh, swept backwards? Why, if you drop a, a heavy object from a tall tower, why does it land near the base of the tower? Shouldn't it be whooshed uh, away? So there are all these objections, and Copernicus, actually, to his credit, thought through these, because he, he was used to hearing them, so he kind of gives you uh, some arguments that you can use, um, and, and he, he talks about that. But it, it was controversial, and, and, and Tycho Brahe actually didn't he, he didn't like the old view and he didn't like the Copernican view, so he came up with a sort of hybrid view in which uh the planets um go around uh the sun, the sun and the but the sun, sun goes, goes around, around the earth. earth. Yeah, I have to right. say it slowly or I get it right, wrong. Right. But exactly right. So it was this kind of high whatever you might call that, uh heliogeocentric or I, I just say Tychonic or or Tycho's uh Tycho's system. Uh now let me see, what were we talking about a second ago? Because I was gonna you're talking about the supernova. Yeah. So, so one of the things that's just kind of natural to ask is, could this have, have influenced Shakespeare? And, and I have in the first couple of pages of the book, I have a, uh, a prologue which is made up. So it's the, the only part of the book that's, that's fiction. But I just imagine young Shakespeare witnessing this. Now, I guess you could say the catch is that he was only eight years old, but I think eight, an eight-year-old, or about eight and a half in those days, was a bit more than what we think of a, an eight-year-old kid today. Now, this is a, a little bit hard to prove, 
But, uh, I mean, he would have already had his first year of grammar school under his belt. He was learning, or beginning to learn, uh, Greek and Latin, um, you know, learning passages from the Bible. I think, okay, we know very little about the young Shakespeare, but I think it's a pretty safe guess that he was very curious about how things you know, why things are are the way they are and what, what goes on in the world. I mean, his real interest, obviously, was human nature and what drives human beings to do different things. And anyway, but, you know, could he have seen it? I mean, you know, he was eight years old. And, uh, you know, in, in the prologue, I, I invent this little encounter, you know, this little dialogue between him and his father uh, reacting to this object in the night sky. But, we you know, we don't know if he saw it. But, but... All right, he was eight years old when that happened. He was 40 years old when uh, Kepler's star, uh, the next supernova, uh, appears in the sky. So he, he couldn't have missed uh, Kepler's supernova. So there you go. So Shakespeare had two chances to, to see a supernova. And, you know, poor us in the 21st century, uh, we have not had... In fact, there hasn't been a supernova within the Milky Way galaxy since Kepler's star of 1604. And it's true, we did have one in the large Magellanic Cloud in, what, in 1980-something? Yeah, 1980-something. But you something. needed a telescope. For you that. needed a telescope, and I, it, you had to be in the Southern Hemisphere, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, it was yeah. discovered so, well, it in Chile, I, mean, I believe. That's right. So so um, you wouldn't have been able to see it from the latitude of England uh, at any rate. So we're overdue for a supernova, and maybe we'll... I mean, these were supernova that, that you could see with the naked eye, uh, especially yeah. at night. They would They would really have left quite a... Uh, an apparent mark on the sky. Yeah, and you know, here's another point worth making. I mean, I think the sky was a bigger deal back yeah. then uh, than it is now. I mean, now we all live in cities. The, our urban skies are very light polluted. So, you know, all right, you wait for, I mean, today happens to be cloudy. You wait for a clear clear day. You wait for a clear night. You go outside, but um, we're recording this in, in New York City. I mean, it's the skies aren't great. I was in Central Park a few days ago after after nightfall, and yes, you could see Arcturus and you could see the Big Dipper, Mars. Yeah, you could see with difficulty. You could see the Big Dipper. Yeah. That's right, and you could see Vega, and that's about it. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you really tried, you could see another six or seven or eight or nine stars. But it was very very challenging. But in Shakespeare's time, and and by the way, I live in in Toronto where it's the same the same challenge. I mean, yes, you can see fifteen or twenty stars from an urban setting, but it's 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 not impressive. Uh, in Shakespeare's time, there really wasn't any, I mean, yes, there were, you know, people were burning wood fires and there was smoke, but I mean, only in London, right? I mean, uh, and uh, basically where Shakespeare grew up in, in Stratford, I mean, the skies were pristine. Now <laughs> there were still clouds. You had to wait. You might have to wait a few days for the clouds to part. But when you had a clear sky, the sky, uh, a clear night, the sky would have been spectacular. And it would have, I think, just been part, have been part of the culture you know, a, a shepherd would have easily known the different constellations. Uh, a farmer, I mean, someone who's, of course, whose livelihood depended on knowing the seasons would have had this sort of intimate familiarity, right? They would actually know. Like today, think about it, how, how few of us can say, well, well, what, what phase is the moon at? Now, mm-hmm. I know because I'm in, into this kind of thing. And so I, I watched the full moon a few days ago. So I know that the moon is a few days after full. But if we just saw people on the street, I think a lot of people wouldn't know. Or if we asked them, so right now is Venus a morning star or is Venus an evening star? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that'd be tricky for people. But I think, I think back then, I mean, yes, of course, people had to get on with their lives and there was like just the struggle for 
making ends meet and so on and working the fields and tending to the animals and so on. But I think people would have had a kind of basic awareness of the night sky. That's it for part one of Dan Falk talking about his book, The Science of Shakespeare, A New Look at the Playwrights Universe. We'll be right back with part two.